Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. Episode 151, we're into the 1840s, and it's time to analyze some issues, one being education, the other roads. Given our crisis in education these days, it's perhaps another of the historical ironies that state-funded schooling was offered by 1839 and 1840 in the Cape, or free. Something that was unparalleled at the time, except for Prussia, and a handful of New England states in America. Yes, you heard that right. South Africa was an early adopter of free education. Another growing phenomenon at this moment was the building of roads, something that was sorely required in a region as vast as Southern Africa. After the Sixth Frontier War of 1834-5, municipal government began to develop and a new legislative council was struggling to make sense of the existing political system. All members of the council were appointed by the governor and only gained the right to alter the charters of justice or the law in 1844. Christoffel Brandt, editor of the Zeit Afrikaan, and Robert Godlinton, editor of the Grahamstown Journal, both talked of an elective assembly. Godlinton added he preferred to see the Eastern Cape achieve independence from the Cape. These erstwhile journalists were merely repeating conversations that were taking place across the British Empire in the fourth decade of the 19th century. In Australia, for example, the 1840s were years of conflict as British settlers increasingly moved away from towns seeking new farmland. First Nations fought back and resisted this expansion. Violence ensued. Squatters who leased large pastoral lands from the colonial governments in New South Wales and Tasmania, Victoria, and into Queensland and eventually South Australia, increasingly gained political and economic influence. They became wealthy off the land leased at low rates, stocking them with thousands of sheep with their fleeces sold into the British market. Many of these squatters, with time and money, stood for election to Parliament to set the laws and rules in their favour. Wool was also going to become the Cape in South Africa's main resource shortly. The gloom of the trekkers leaving the province had been replaced by an economic upturn. The Cape Colony's finances were in a much healthier condition than they'd been ten years earlier. Governor de Urban, who'd left her home already, had launched a campaign to simplify the fiscal system, and by 1840 the campaign had begun to bear fruit. The collection of taxes by Colonial Secretary John Montague resulted in the Cape finally wiping off its public debt and repaying the British government in full. Customs revenues were rising, the Slave Compensation Fund had helped, and the delivery of stores during the Sixth Frontier War had bolstered imports, while exports also grew. Wine farms had experienced a slight drop in sales starting in 1825, but wool by now had largely replaced this commodity. Merino sheep had been acclimatized in the Albany district first, around Grahamstown just before the War of 1834, and suddenly there was a lot of money to be made farming these animals for their wool. Within 10 years, by the 1850s, wool would outstrip all other Cape exports put together, just like in Australia. Hides and skins and guano from Ichibu Island off the Namaquiland coast, even mining, was starting to grow. Joint stock companies were being formed, with speculators hoping for copper at a new venture at Fundestel's Cooperbach in Namaquiland. Financial institutions were launched. Two in particular, the Cape Town Board of Executives and the old Colonial Mutual Assurance Society. Then there was the Grahamstown Fire and Life Assurance Company, which was being planned and would launch in 1845. 
Lighthouse building was sorely required, and there were blueprints for three, including one at Mool Point, which was under construction and finished in 1842, as well as the Roman rock lightship, and a major undertaking at Port Ogales and Cape Recif, and that lighthouse would only pop up in 1849. Eighteen new banks opened in the colony in this period, causing the closure of the first, the Old Loan Bank. The coastal trade, too, was showing signs of profit, as the British sought to seize Natal. This was going to accelerate, and a new treaty was going to be signed by Maitland with the Amampondo for Port St. John's. A 50-day steam mail service had now linked Cape Town and Britain. New jetties were built in Table Bay and in Port Elizabeth, and up the coast, entrepreneurs were dreaming of piers at Port Francis, or Port Alfred, as it was going to be known. Cape Town was already partly lit by gas by 1840, and the city had rebuilt its Grote Kerk, as well as the Roman Catholic Cathedral, and a large military hospital had sprung up. Every town, including Graaf Renet and Beaufort West, and other country districts saw churches and villages springing up in all directions. In fact, Beaufort West was the first town in the colony to take up its own power to levy rates and taxes to its residents, as well as taking full charge of its own affairs. This happened in 1837, followed by Somerset East, George, Gramstown and Craddock, leaving Cape Town to languish. Eventually, even slow-paced Cape Town followed in 1840 with its first municipality created by special ordinance and set free to replace its old-fashioned dogberries, its rough policemen, with Sir Robert Peel's Bobbies on the Beat. The days of mayors, mace-bearers and city councillors were still far distant, but these boards of commissioners lay the foundations of our modern system of genuine elected local government. The next to face the modernising trend were the churches. The laws governing the Dutch Reformed Church stretched all the way back to the late 1600s. This was more than 200 years later, and the Synod found itself replacing these political commissioners. They were fundamental during the time of the VOC, but times change. From now on, the Synod met in Cape Town every five years and regulated all internal concerns of the Church without any interference by the Governor. A Synod Commission would run matters between these Synod meetings and five presbyteries, were organised. These were in Cape Town, Tulbach, Swillendam, Graaf Reinet and Gramstown. It was true that the ministers continued being paid by the state and the magistrates' courts would deal with any actions arising out of the synod. However, what had now taken place was the most powerful ecclesiastical body in the colony had achieved self-government. Colonial chaplains, which had run the Anglican Church, were being replaced and Robert Gray was appointed Bishop of Cape Town. He arrived in the colony with clergy he'd brought, and by 1848, they'd put new life into the 13 existing Anglican congregations. They founded Bishop's or Diocesan College in Rondebosch. Within a decade, a school called Zunublum College would be set up for the children of Amakosa chiefs, and began to educate the sons and daughters of chiefs who were going to be imprisoned on Robben Island. So, we'll get to why the then-governor Sir George Grey set up the school at a later date. Let's just say it was an attempt at stripping Amatosa leadership in the Eastern Cape of their power and to draw a new generation into the British realm. But what these new church structures did was far more fundamental in South African history. They accepted Robert Godlington's principle of separation. Not just separation from the British political system, but separation of the races. Mission organizations like the Moravians, the London Missionary Society, the Wesleyans, the Rhenish, Berlin, Paris and SA Missionary Societies flourished in and around the Cape Colony, 
All of these, except the Moravians, concentrated on book learning. It was perhaps another irony that these mission schools were so energetic that they were turning out black and coloured South Africans who were actually better educated than their white peers. I'll explain. Many of the Trek Boers could not access education. Even the English settlers were finding it difficult to access education for their children. There were excellent private schools for the elite, like Tut Nut Het Algemeen, or for the good of all, a Dutch medium institution that had started in 1807, part of the Batavians' parting gift to the people of South Africa. The South African College, founded in 1829, was another, a joint enterprise of British and Dutch colonists. Sacks to you and me, but expensive, very expensive. You know how these private schools are. However, the 24 other schools scattered across the country had been going downhill for some time. These were known as Somerset schools after the governor. They were found in the principal villages of the colony and supervised by the Bible and School Committee. That committee was based in Graf Reinet, overseen by Predikant van Mange, while each district centre was led by a local Predikant along with a school board that could decide very little. These were not school boards like we know these days. They were nominal powerless groups elected by subscribers, and by 1840 they were unhappy to note that the mainly Scottish schoolmasters were now departing in droves. The state subsidies had diminished, and country folk were complaining that the schools did not provide the kind of schooling they desired, mainly because the schooling was done in English. There were elementary schools at each church place, and on the farms itinerant teachers lurked, many of questionable talents and even more doubtful character. To his credit, Sir George Napier wanted to improve this situation, and following a report prepared by Colonial Secretary John Bell for his predecessor, Durban, Napier turned to a fascinating man called Sir John Herschel. He was a famous astronomer who was collaborating with Thomas McClear, the Cape Astronomer Royal, at the private observatory at Claremont near Cape Town. And of course, this is why we call observatory, observatory. Loved by the students, loathed by their parents, a place of excellent entertainment to this day. OBS is a seminal party centre characterised by the smell of cannabis on Lower Main Street. But I digress. Sir John Herschel had a cunning plan. He began to develop a system that bore his name, whereby two classes of schools were recognised. In one, the English medium classical school, the school of Latin and thrashings, which charged a small fee to those who could not get a government bursary, and the second-class schools, where education was free and Dutch was the medium of language. The teachers were paid meagre salaries. I mean, what's changed? And subscribers to these schools provided the upkeep of buildings and could also try and supplement the teachers' meagre incomes. But before we wave our accusatory fingers this way and that, let's explore how these worked. The outstanding features of this Herschel system was the provision of schooling by the state. As I've said, nowhere else on planet Earth was this being done at the time except for Prussia and a handful of New England states. More importantly, John Herschel set in motion the concept of inspections, that teachers could be inspected as part of the system. This was already taking place in England. Inspection was entrusted to James Rose Innes, another Scot, who appear to be better placed as teachers than many other nationalities, if you follow history at all. I'll come back to Herschel in a moment. You'll be totally shocked by what he did for Southern Africa, not to mention the world of astronomy and innovation. Rose Innes was Chair of Mathematics at the South African College, and he thus became the Superintendent General of Education, or in other words, 
the Cape Colony's education department in propria persona. That's Latin and means someone who acts on their own behalf. I guess we'd all like to be known as people who commit to in propria persona. And because this is South Africa, he faced an immediate challenge. The demand of the missionaries and philanthropists that black and coloured children be taught at these schools. The settlers were not exactly enamoured by this demand, and Rosinus overcame the problem of finding teachers by having access to his native Scotland, and secondly, by decreeing that all scholars had to be decently clothed and of good deportment to enter these state schools. This was what historian Eric Walker calls an elastic description that served to keep out such non-European youngsters as their white neighbours might object to. The system grew. Eventually, grants were paid for what was known as third-class schools found in distant country districts. They were free. But a quick note about Sir John Herschel. Well, not too quick. This is someone about whom you need to scrutinise with an intense scrut, to quote Spike Milligan. Herschel was born in Buckinghamshire and was the son of Mary Baldwin, an astronomer, William Herschel, nephew of another astronomer, Caroline Herschel. He went to Eton, then Cambridge, and launched the Royal Astronomical Society in 1820. By the mid-1820s, he was reading about Indian mathematicians and astronomers, including the Brahma Siddhanta, who had lived in the beginning of the 7th century. Herschel was way above average. He was thought of as a polymath, an inventor, a chemist who loved photography and invented what is known as the blueprint. This paper will prove valuable wrote John Herschel in a scientific memorandum on April 23, 1842, noting the effect of sunlight on a sample he had treated with ferrocyanate of potash. The light turned the chemical blue, leading Herschel to believe he had found a basis for the invention of colour photography. He had not, nor would he live long enough to witness the true usefulness of his discovery, but he did coin this phrase, blueprint. And in 1839, Herschel coined the term photography, to complete this polymath's jaw-dropping smarts, and was also the first to apply the terms negative and positive to photography. He went on to name the seven moons of Saturn and the four moons of Uranus. I mean, the rest of us are mere mortals. In 1833, he paid for his own trip to South Africa, bringing his wife Margaret and their three children, as well as his 20-foot telescope he'd built. Setting up shop at his observatory, he called Felthausen, that was at Clermont, and he noted the return of Halley's Comet as one of the main achievements. He and his wife Margaret went on to produce 131 botanical illustrations of Cape Feinbos, using what was known as the Camera Lucida to create accurate outlines of the plants. Herschel was fascinated by Table Mountain, and having read Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology, he postulated that the world must be thousands of millions of years old. It was a process of catastrophic extinction and renewal, he wrote. So when Charles Darwin visited Cape Town in 1836 aboard the HMS Beagle, he sought out Herschel and cited him later as one of the world's greatest philosophers. A stone obelisk erected in 1842 is in the grounds of the Grove Primary School in Clermont and marks the site where his 20-inch reflector telescope once stood. After setting up his Herschel school system, the very important scientist left African shores in 1838. The settlement of Herschel in the Eastern Cape and the Herschel Girls' School in Clermont, both named after him. Perhaps a final ironic nod, the Herschel Girls' School is now a private weekly boarding and day school for girls, one of the top schools in South Africa. It's double ironic too, because Herschel Girls' School is one of the most expensive schools in the country, 
There are waiting lists for every grade, including pre-nursery. Sir John would be proud, perhaps. So, with our short detour over back to South Africa circa 1840s, the primary material needs of the colony right now were magistrates, roads and labour. Magistrates were relatively easy to deliver, compared with the other two. Hard roads had been built since 1806, including the French Hook or France Hook Road in 1824, Sir Lowry's Pass over the Hottentots Hollands Mountains in 1830, and the Queen's Road from Grahamstown to Beaufort starting 1840. These were built by soldiers or convicts or both. Strangely enough, farmers were against the building of these roads by labour because they were short of labour and feared a drain on this important resource. In 1840, the Legislative Council was looking at immigration or at least imported labour. Some St. Hellenians were considered, so too the Gurkhas of Burma. Military convicts were also considered, bringing them to Robben Island, said Napier. Then, when they'd finished their terms, they should be hired to build roads. He had to give up that notion. Hundreds of military convicts lurking around the Cape was not a good look. But convicts building roads, what a great concept, said the bureaucrats. There was something called a grand plan with big G and P. Montague and the Surveyor General Major Charles Mitchell considering something known as the Montague Plan. This involved trunk roads being built across the colony, run by a central board of three officials and three nominated citizens, financed by a state grant, as well as rates, loans and tolls. Divisional roads were going to be set up, managed by the civil commissioner of each, supported by four elected members who were going to build the branch roads from these main trunk routes. Coming soon was Montague Pass, Mitchell's Pass and Baines Kloof. All these were to be built by convicts and free labourers imported at government expense. Nearly 4,300 labourers and mechanics, as they were called, were arriving. Some were domestic servants. Between 1844 and 1847, many more arrived in southern Africa. Unfortunately, Harry Smith was on his way back to oversee some of these road developments. I say unfortunately because Smith was going to mismanage the Eastern Cape into a terrible war, probably one of the most destructive, the War of the Axe, and that put pay to all these wonderful road developments in the short term. What happened there is for another day, as we wind down episode 151, it's time to stand back a little and look at things with a roomy eye, or lacrimose eye, or just watery. During the 1840s, Britain was going to be progressively sucked into a scene of what you could call was anarchy. The Transorangia region, Zululand, the Highfeld, all were now scenes of violence, fighting, ethnic disturbances. Dr. John Philip, who was the South African superintendent of the London Missionary Society, was working with the Kwikwa chiefs and had close relations with the missionaries who were living with Moshweshwe in the mountains above the Caledon Valley. They were all trying to persuade the British authorities that they had a strategic and a humanitarian interest in intervening in southern Africa to protect the Griqua and the Sutu. These people lived on the main routes taken by the Trekpurs into the interior of the country, on the route between the Cape Colony and Natal. Road-making hadn't got this far, but that hadn't stopped the Fuertrekkers, as you know. They'd spread out across the landscape. Dr. Philip was going to visit Adam Cook of the Griqua, and Moshweshwe of the Basutu, and they were starting to think about their relationships with the British more fundamentally. The decisive link between Moshweshwe's French missionaries and the colonial government was Dr. Philip. He had advised the Paris directors to send their men to South Africa and acted as their financial agent in Cape Town. 
Because of his connections with the religious and philanthropic lobby in England, and because he had vast reserves of energy, Philip was going to exert immense leverage on the colonial government. He had a close working relationship with Sir George Napier and championed the Khoikhoi and coloured people inside the colony, and was a vehement critic of the white settlers and their dealings with Ahmad Khosa, and all Africans for that matter. Dr. Philip wanted the British to annex the Haarfelds and Natal in a kind of fait accompli, thus ruining the Fortrex's plans for independence. To say they hated Dr. Philip is perhaps one of the understatements of the 1800s. At least extend protection to Adam Cook and Mashweshwe, he said. British policymakers were actually searching for ways to stabilise the frontier and appease the noisy evangelicals. They had already offered protection to Andres Vatabur, and by signing up Adam Cook III and Mushweshwe, they would complete a semi-circle of allied African states along the borders of the Cape. If you recall, Andres Vatabur was an oddity, even by the odd standards of our crazy story. He was of pure San origin, unlike the Griqua people, and yet was elected as Griqua Captain at the Captain's residence in Griquastat on the 20th of December 1820. His rise to leadership had alienated a great many of the other powerful factions of the remaining Griqua nation. Many of these split off as separate nations, such as the fierce nomadic Bachanas. Wars ensued with both the Bachanas and the Koranas. Vatubur had then formed an alliance with the Cape Colony to the south, although this alliance frequently faltered in the ensuing conflicts. Eventually, Vatubur defeated the Bachanas, the Koranas, and other Griqua factions and consolidated his rulership. By lining up the Griqua as well as Vatabur and Moshweshwe of the Basutu, this would extend British protection from Griqua town all the way to the Indian Ocean. We'll come back to what happened next in episode 152. Please head off to the website desmolatham.blog where I'll load an update about this episode. You can email me from there or direct message me on x at deslatham. Until next, tot ziens. Thank you.